Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Representative Angela Romero, a Democrat from Salt Lake City, is sponsoring House Bill 98, which would create a third-degree felony offense of sexual conduct without affirmative consent. Current Utah law defines sexual abuse as when the victim expresses lack of consent through words or conduct. The Consent Project defines affirmative consent as affirmative, conscious, and voluntary agreement to engage in sexual activity. The standard would move if this bill were successful, essentially, from no means no to yes means yes. Representative Romero says requiring affirmative consent would give prosecutors another tool to look at when addressing sexual assault. Opponents say the bill could have unintended consequences. Today we're going to be talking about affirmative consent. And our guests are Representative Angela Romero and BYU nursing professor Julie Valentine. Let me start with you, Representative uh, Romero. House Bill 98, what would this do? So what this bill would do is it would um, create a third-degree felony, and it would um, provide a new definition for affirmative consent in our code. What does the current law say? What uh, What is the current definition? I don't have that right in front of me. Um, the current definition. I don't know if Dr. Valentine could answer that. Sure. The current definition, uh, one of the challenges is that it states that a victim has to verbally state or infer, meaning actions, to demonstrate no. The challenge is that recent research indicates that we have a large percentage of victims who are unable to say no. They may be intoxicated, they may be a suspected drug facilitated, uh, or they may be experiencing something called tonic immobility, also called rape freeze syndrome, where the fear from the assault actually renders someone unable to move very well or to speak. And I've been doing research on this in Utah uh, since 2010, and we have a database of about 10,000 patients, and we've found that almost half, 48%, report some degree of loss or of consciousness or awareness during the assault. And not all of them are related to alcohol or strangulation or being drugged, but actually from the fear of the assault. So research now tells us that we have a large percentage of patients or victims who are unable to respond no. And so forcible rape, that forcible rape felony one statute means that it has to be shown that they acted or fought back or said no. And that means a large percentage of our sexual assault or rape cases are not prosecuted. And so the, I imagine that's a big piece of this, Representative Romero, right? Um, I, I don't know what the statistic is, but uh, it, it's a small number that actually, I guess, even get charged. And then from that, they actually get a conviction. Yeah, that that is correct. And Dr. Valentine approached me a few years, few years back about um, running this piece of legislation and she has extensive knowledge, and she's done extensive research on um, the numbers here in Utah, 
And again, I will defer to her because I know she has to leave soon. And the research she's, she's done is critical, and I would love her to share that with the public. Dr. Valentine, yeah, share some of that with us. Sure. So I did a study. Uh, this is a National Institute of Justice toolkit study where we look at sexual assault cases where the victim was 18 years or older and had a fully collected rape kit. That means they came in within five days of the rape and had evidence collected and said, I want to prosecute my case. I want to talk to law enforcement. And I did this study looking at cases in Salt Lake County from 2003 to 2011 um, in in 2013 and found out of those cases, only 6% were prosecuted. Remember, these were all that had fully collected rape kits. Um, I redid this study for Salt Lake County and also for Utah County um, about a year and a half ago and found Salt Lake County went up to 8% prosecuted, and, and that was because of the increased uh, filing of cases by the Salt Lake District Attorney's Office, um, and Utah County was at 10%. Now, again, these are all cases where the victim had a fully collected rape kit and said, I want to prosecute my case. About 75% of these victims had physical injuries, about 50% had anogenital injuries, about 15% were strangled, and yet we are still prosecuting a very, very low amount of these cases. What that means, the bottom line is, in the United States, Utah has one of the highest rape cases. We're a pretty safe state when you look at the FBI Uniform Crime Report rates, except for one crime. And that crime is rape. And we strongly believe that this legislation would make our state safer by allowing us to identify and intercede earlier in identifying uh, these perpetrators of sexual violence by a third-degree felony, which would be sexual offense without uh, affirmative consent. And other states have done this, and we're modeling this after a statute that's been in place for a couple decades in Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin, I also understand, uh, I think Colorado passed something in 2019, right? Um, so what are, we, what, Correct. Are, what are we seeing from Wisconsin? What, uh, uh, maybe elucidate, how, how does this help? I guess another tool in the toolkit kind of thing. That's exactly what we're calling it. This really is another tool in the toolkit. Right now, we have two tools in prosecuting sexual offenses, rape. We have uh, felony one, forcible rape, and then below that, we drop all the way to a misdemeanor, which is sexual battery. There's all kinds of problems with not having this graduated approach. Um, Misdemeanors, uh, they're very easily expunged. They also, um, the perpetrator's DNA doesn't go into CODIS, so we can't work to identify um, uh, if it's a repeat offender. Um, So in Wisconsin, their rape rates are lower than the national average. I can't say that that's just due to this law, right? There's, There's so many other factors that we would need to tease out so even though we can compare and see that ours 
wow, we're eighth in the nation on our uh, rape rate by FBI um, Uniform Crime Reports. Wisconsin is way below the national average, but I can't say it's fully due just to this law. But we think this law is a great starting point. And, and quite honestly, this law is not just good for all of society. It would be better for those charged with the crime as well, because uh, rather than there are some cases that likely somebody might be charged with felony one forcible rape, when the charge could be a uh, felony three, which is the sexual offense without affirmative consent. I want to follow up on uh, what you said earlier. Um, you know, so so laying aside the, the toolkit, why is Utah kind of an outlier here? Why, why are we having such a problem with this? Well, one of the reasons is because we have low prosecution rates. You know, we, uh, we've created a system where we have perpetrators that um, are not held accountable and justice does not happen in these cases. And so the perpetrators continue to offend. Um, we also have to look at uh, how many of our victims report. We know that even though we have high rate rates, meaning those that report, we also have really low uh, numbers for those victims um, that actually report. That's only about 12%. So our rape numbers are actually higher than they're represented in the FBI Uniform Crime Reports. So we have to look at, all right, what's the culture of our state? We have a very conservative state uh, in areas, communities um, that are very conservative, uh, many times there are more victim-blaming uh, myths abound, and the biggest one is that there's a lot of false reporting in rapes. And I'm a researcher, and I will tell you that is not true. Um, there have been many studies that have looked at false reporting in rapes. does happen. It's about 2 to 8 percent. The FBI big study was 5 percent. That's the same as other crimes. So when people have the perception that there's a lot of false reporting in rapes, then that, that transfers to not believing victims. And if we have a culture society where we don't believe victims, then victims aren't going to report. And then the cycle continues. And then if then those that do report, we have very low criminal justice system response. The violence perpetuates. I know we have to let you go in here in a couple of minutes. Uh, just a final question. We, uh, you know, we, we teach our kids about stranger danger and, and uh, you know, sexual assault and rapes do happen from strangers. But, uh, you know, a big piece of this is, uh, you know, people we know very well, uh, partners, uh, our right. spouses, etc. Right. I wonder how, how this uh, affirmative consent would, uh, would affect uh, that. Do you think it would help there? Well, I see this really happening uh, a lot in, in uh, really affecting a lot what we would term date rapes, right? So these are sexual assaults um, by acquaintances, and that's our highest percentage. Um, in my database of about 10,000 cases, almost 60% fall in that category of acquaintance sexual assaults. So you're right that it's very rare um, that it's uh, somebody popping out of the bushes, but we are about 18% stranger, but that might be someone 
that they don't know their name, but they were at the party or didn't really have interaction with them, but have some peripheral, we still would code that as being a stranger. So this law would uh, really be a game changer, especially for the bulk of our cases, those acquaintance or date rape cases. Well, I, I know we need to, to let you uh, go here, uh, Julie Valentine, a nursing professor at uh, Brigham Young University. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams. We're talking about affirmative consent. Representative Angela Romero is sponsoring House Bill 98, which would create a third-degree felony offense of sexual conduct without affirmative consent. And uh, we spoke mostly in that segment with Julie Valentine, who's Associate Dean of and a professor in the uh, College of Nursing at Brigham Young University. Also, of course, spoke with Representative Angela Romero. And uh, Julie Valentine had to go. We'll uh, come back after a break and continue the conversation with Representative Romero following this. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and Silicon Slopes Magazine, focused on Utah tech, business, and startups, supporting causes that affect us all. Information about upcoming events and advertising in the magazine at siliconslopes.com, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Support also comes from the Chamber Music Society of Logan, presenting the Foray Quartet, a German piano quartet performing Schubert, Brahms, and Mussorgsky, Sunday, February 27th at 7.30 p.m. in the Russell Wanless Performance Hall. Information at cmslogan.org. Pulitzer Prize winner Natasha Trethewey honors her mother and a Civil War regiment in poetry and song. Here, the river changed its course, turning away from the city as one turns, forgetting from the past. The Alliance Theatre production of Native Guard by Natasha Trethewey, next time on L.A. Theatre Works. Tune in Friday night at 9 here on Utah Public Radio. It's time for Utah Public Radio's annual Art Mug Contest, and we're asking for your entries now through February 18th. You can use any artistic medium for your design. Just show us what you love about UPR, our programming, or our station's home here in Utah. You'll all get to vote on your favorite design, and the winner will be printed on this year's mug, available during our spring member drive. For more details, go to upr.org, and to submit, just send your designs to me, katie.swain at usu.edu, by February 18th. The Utah Legislative Session is well underway. Governor Spencer Cox has signed at least nine bills into law. High up on lawmakers' priority lists are air quality, education programs, tax cuts, infrastructure, water, clean energy, and affordable housing. Join Utah Public Radio for coverage of the 2022 legislative session from the UPR Newsroom. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we're speaking with Representative Angela Romero, who's sponsoring House Bill 98, which would create a third-degree felony offense of sexual conduct without affirmative consent. So we're talking about affirmative consent and related topics. Uh, we'll continue the discussion now with Representative Romero. Uh, so, Representative Romero, um, so th this... Uh, um, Professor Valentine talked about a Wisconsin law. I know there's a, 
been reading there's a Colorado law enacted in 2019. California has an affirmative consent law that covers high school and college students. I'm also reading. Um, do you Did you model your legislation after any of those? Actually, we modeled it after Wisconsin. Again, I mentioned that earlier I had been working with Dr. Valentine, and as you can um, hear and, and from her, she has a lot of extensive research when it comes to Utah. And really one of the reasons why I ran this piece of legislation is um, since I've been up here at the, the Capitol and focusing on sexual assault prevention, domestic violence prevention, and human trafficking prevention, I've just heard from so many younger people, um, young women in particular, who um, weren't believed or they went through the whole process and their case wasn't prosecuted. And so I, I really feel like it is my duty as an elected official to be their voice and to try to find some laws that will help them move forward in their life and heal. And Dr. Valentine didn't men- mention this, but not every person who experiences sexual assault is going to rape it is going to report it to law enforcement because they feel like they won't be believed or maybe it is an acquaintance and and they don't want to go down that road. And so what we always um, encourage um, survivors to do is to get in touch with a rape crisis center and make sure that they're healing on their own terms and they're able to move forward with their lives. So outside of the prosecution piece, we are doing a lot of legislation to be supportive of victims because so many times we do everything that we can to help people rehabilitate, and I'm all for that. I'm all about restorative justice, but we tend to forget about the people who were victimized and their families and how it impacted them and their lives, and, and you see a lot of trauma in our state and across the country, especially when it comes to sexual assault, because women are shamed. They feel like they're not believed, and again, women are not the only victims um, we have people from other marginalized communities that are victims as well. Uh, men could be victims. But as, as you see the, the numbers and the work I've been doing on murder to missing Indigenous women, you see that um, many um, certain populations are at higher risk. And again, it's, I think it's our culture and it's the way we value people. So it uh, sounds like cultural shift is needed. How, how do we do that? Well, by running laws like this, um, Representative Carolyn Moss is running some legislation this session on talking about sexual assault and, um, and, and, and healthy relationships. But really, it's us having honest conversations. And yeah, we do need to have a cultural shift, but I have a son who's 25. He, you know, and I've talked to him and his peers. They know what affirmative consent is. And so I think there's a generational gap up here at the Capitol because um, many of us are over 35, um, we're over 35 plus. And so I think what it was like when I was growing up is very different than what it's like now for my my son who is um, in his 20s. And, and so I think he and many of his friends understand what affirmative consent is, but um, people aren't going to... Um, value that shift if they're not held accountable. And so I think the education is important, but we also have to tell people what consequences are because there are many individuals who feel like they don't have to have consent and, and they continue to do it. And, and it's not just one person, it's multiple people. And so I, I want to make sure I hold that person accountable. And a lot of people will say, well, what about that one person that made the mistake? And I'm like, well, that, that does 
we all make mistakes. But when you sexually assault someone and you don't have their consent, you need to be held accountable. Uh, I want to bring up uh, some points that opponents of uh, the bill, this was brought up, I think, last year when you when you uh, tried this, and it's probably being brought up again this year. Um, some opponents say that uh, interpretation of the bill could be overly broad, and uh, say prosecution could be brought against married couples or individuals unaware of the need for affirmative consent. What would you say? Well, those arguments have been used against me whenever I run sexual assault legislation, so it's not new to this bill. And if somebody has sexually assaulted their partner, if they're in in an intimate partner relationship, then they should be held accountable. But I can tell you this. I hear this all the time. Well, do I have to get a note from my wife? And my thing is, is your wife going to turn you into the police? And so I get tired of of that as like, oh, I'm going to have to get a note because I have to have affirmative consent. And if you look at the law, by words or actions. And if you're in a committed relationship and that person does not want to have, a, you know, go down that road with you and you still force them to, then that's rape. I don't care if you're in a, in a, in a relationship. So it's about boundaries and it's about respect. And it's about ensuring that people know what consent is. I, I again, as a policymaker, as, as a mother, as a woman, I'm tired of the excuses of, well, I'm going to have to, you know, write somebody a note, or I'm tired of the excuses of of people saying, well, that person's a good person, but no, that person raped somebody. They need to be held accountable. As Dr. Valentine pointed out, their rape is, it's underreported here in Utah, and we're higher than the national average. We do have a problem, and so I feel like this bill addresses that issue. Um, I want to just uh, just so we make sure that, that we understand uh, affirmative consent is uh, verbal. Uh, you have to say you know yes or indicate uh, consent to the to this act. It's words or actions mm-hmm. or actions. Okay, uh, affirmatively con- consenting. Uh, in, in other words, yes means yes. Uh, I guess beyond no means no. Right. Yes. Yeah. As Dr. Valentine mentioned, in many of the cases she's researched. A person did not give affirmative consent. They didn't say yes, they didn't say no, but that didn't mean they wanted to have sex because they were traumatized by the experience. So they both, and she's done extensive research on this. And, and I've heard this from many um, individuals who um, have been violated. And, and, and for me, I think we just have to have these conversations. It wasn't that long ago where we heard a football coach saying um, young women were lying about being sexually assaulted because they didn't want to get in trouble because of the cultural dynamic of their their religious institution. We also had young people afraid of um, saying they were raped at BYU because they were afraid that they were going to get disciplined and maybe kicked out of school. So, again, we definitely need laws, but we also need to do a cultural shift, and we need to stop victim-blaming and we see this across the country. We've seen this with the Me Too movement. We, we see it all the time. Until we have a power structure in place that truly believes victims of sexual assault, as Dr. Valentine pointed out, um, false accusations do happen, but they're rare. They're just like any other crime. And until we hold people to that standard, 
we'll continue to see these high rates. And we'll continue to see people silence themselves and not um, not report that they were sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. And then we see that trauma carried on in different parts of their life. The, uh, that's a big piece of this, isn't it? Uh, it's it's a large percentage, uh, or, or in other words, you know, the reverse, a small percentage, I think, right, of sexual assault survivors who who even report, let alone, uh, you know, seek prosecution. Um, as you said, stopping themselves, silencing themselves. How, how do we change that? You know, it's, it, that's an important question, and I don't have every answer. I mean, I was having this conversation with a good friend of mine, and he and I were talking about this, and he mentioned to me, out of all the women he dated, and, and he's married now, only one of those individuals hadn't happened, happened to her that was related to sexual assault. And that's a huge problem. And and so why should um, women in particular, and I'm not saying other people don't get sexually assaulted because they do, but why do they have to carry that with them? Why aren't we telling people don't put something in somebody's drink, um, you know, and, and and don't stereotype some, somebody because what they were wearing and use that as an as a reason as why you sexually assaulted them. And so I think we have to put the burden back on the perpetrator. And with this particular bill, the burden falls on the state. The state has to prove if a sexual assault actually happened. And so that's another um, misconception of this bill. And another thing that we've worked on in this bill, um, when it comes to juveniles, there's no sex offender registry or there's no felony um, because we, we look at juveniles through a different lens and that's based off of restorative justice. But again, with this bill, if somebody is convicted of sexual assault previously and they do it again, they do go on the sexual assault registry. And that's critical. Of course, with any prosecution like this in this area, it can be very difficult, right? It's uh, it's it's often one person's word against another's. Yes, and 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 that's what Dr. Valentine was talking about when we look at the first degree felony of um, of rape. You you have to show that you resisted through words or action, and then when you have individuals who freeze, how can they prove that um, they were sexually assaulted? And so that's why this bill is critical, because that basically is is a huge um, chunk of people who have been sexually assaulted. I had a lot of young women um, come to me last session because I was trying to do, um, do away with um, home sexual assault kits doing your own thing because they wouldn't be applicable in Law, and and they were um, they were against that particular piece of legislation, but it had nothing to do with that legislation. It had everything to do with the fact that they'd went and got a sexual assault kit, they they had went to law enforcement and reported it, but then when it went to the prosecutor, there wasn't enough evidence for them to move forward in that case, so they felt like the system failed them. And and I I hate to hear those stories. Yeah, yeah, certainly. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Representative Angela Romero, and we're talking about her uh, proposed bill. She's sponsoring House Bill 98, which would uh, create a third-degree felony offense of sexual conduct without affirmative uh, consent. We'll talk more about this following a break, and in the next segment following the break, we'll make a transition later in this hour to talking with Representative Romero about uh, her work 
on Utah's Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Task Force. More following this break. If you're a regular listener of Undisciplined, you've probably noticed some changes lately. That's because Shoshana Buxbaum, who took over as our lead host last year, has accepted a new position with Science Friday. Yeah, Science Friday. We're tremendously excited for Shoshana, even if we are really sad to see her go. But every change is an opportunity, and this change has given us a chance to work with some really great guest hosts. And I'm excited to tell you today that thanks to the support of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, we've hired a new lead host. I think you're going to love Nalini Nadkarni. She's an ecologist, a teacher, and a really talented science communicator. And you'll start hearing her voice on Undisciplined this month. Janet Porter had a dream. They said it was impossible. Even her allies in the anti-abortion movement doubted her. But now, millions of people in Texas are living her dream. What was once impossible is now inevitable. From fringe figure to honored guest. Ms. Porter, come on in. You're in the right place. The fight over abortion rights on the next Reveal. That's Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. What are the 15 things you can't live without during a pandemic? We set out to find the answer to that question in 2021, launching a photo storytelling project from Cash Arts, Utah Public Radio, and photographer Maria Ellen Hubner. You have an opportunity to see the results of that project right now at the Brigham City Museum of Art and History. The collection of images will be up from February 12th to June 18th, and admission is free, so we hope you'll check it out. For more details about the project, go to upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Representative Angela Romero. We're talking about her House Bill 98, which would create a third-degree felony offense of sexual con- conduct without affirmative consent. So we're talking about affirmative consent, talking about sexual assault in general. Earlier in this hour, we also were speaking with Julie Valentine, Associate Dean of and Professor in the College of Nursing at Brigham Young University. And later in this hour, we'll ask Representative Romero uh, what else she is working on. Uh, here's more of our conversation with Representative Angela Romero. Um, how do you, you said you, you know, you run other bills, of course, and uh, work in this area. Um, you know, trauma is a big piece of this, whether it's prosecuted or not, whether it's reported or not. Um, how, how do survivors deal with the trauma? How, what would you say? How best to, how best to proceed? How best to heal? I think it's important for someone to heal on their own terms. And that's why I'm a a big advocate for, um, the rape recovery center here, in, in Salt Lake City, they have counselors, it's confidential. Um, there's the Utah Coalition Against Sexual Assault who can direct individuals, depending on where they live in Utah, to be able to get that help. But the other thing we're doing is we're focusing on preventative education. I just put in an appropriation request, which I have done for the last eight years, where we, provi- where we appropriate funding to these local nonprofits like UCASA, um, which is Utah Coalition Against Sexual Assault, and UDBC, the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition, and uh, RAW, which is Restoring Ancestral Winds, and all these local 
school outfits that they work with to do the preventative education. So hopefully we're not having the conversations about prosecution. So the preventative education is critical. Talking about what a healthy relationship is critical, um, but that's not going to prevent um, sexual assault from happening. But more importantly, um, I know um, Representative Ivory, myself, Senator Escamilla, and others have been working on making sure that we have more funding for people um, so that they can um, move forward from the trauma and, and move on. And, you know, I work a lot on child sex abuse, too, and Representative Ivory, I was running a, a bill this session. I, I gave it back to Representative Ivory because the Supreme Court struck it down here in Utah, but it would give a, a person who was um, sexually abused um, the opportunity to um, take their perpetrator to civil court. And, and that is critical for some people to move on when it comes to child sex abuse. But child sex abuse and, and, and rape at times, I mean, there, there are different forms of, of sexual assault, but they have a, a lasting impact in, in working with individuals and, and hoping that they can find trust again in society and, and trust within their own personal circles. Because as you mentioned, sexual assault, child sex abuse, it's usually somebody you know. I mean, there are strangers out there that commit these acts, but usually it's someone within your circle of trust because they groom you and, and or they feel like they, they have a right to do, um, to take control and to hurt you. And so not everybody's going to deal with that the same way. And so that's why it's so important to have funding for the Rape Recovery Center for all these um, local nonprofits that work with people who have experienced trauma. And so I'll continue to focus on that. And because, again, I, as I mentioned, um, a lot of times we forget about the individuals that are left behind when we're trying to help someone, a perpetrator. And, and, and I totally believe in that restorative justice piece. And I believe that everyone needs a second chance. And so I want people to know I, I don't want to um, put everyone in jail but it's also important to hold people who sexually assault others accountable so that they can get the help they need as well and get the tools that they need with the third-degree felony, which um, could help them um, so they know um, not to do it again. Um, because right now you have that big gap there, and, and if someone feels like they're, they're not going to be held accountable, then they're, they're not going to um, respect themselves or other people and boundaries. I want to uh, follow up, have you talk a little bit more about uh, preventative uh, education. You said you, you know, you have these conversations with your son and uh, you say that, you know, folks, uh, you know, young people that age in their 20s and such uh, seem to have a better understanding of affirmative consent. Some of these uh, things maybe a cultural shift happening in the younger people. I don't know if that's true, but if it's true, um, why is it education? I think it, it is education, and like you said, I can't say that's true. That's just kind of an observation. But I know when my, my son, and not everyone t attends the university, but when my son enrolled at the University of Utah, he had to um, um, take some classes on what consent was in the orientation piece, and maybe it's because he's my child, and when his friends are around me, we have these honest conversations. But talking with some of the interns up here and other people, um, I feel like... Um, the way that they um, view relationships is very different than my generation, and so you just you just see how we view 
healthy relationships evolve and what what is a relationship you know it wasn't that long ago where if two people loved each other um they um they couldn't get married because they were from different races it wasn't that long ago where um we to people that loved each other couldn't get married because um they both identified as men so you see our culture evolving and and so that's how I see affirmative consent. I, I see that evolving with time and us looking at power structures and how we view and treat individuals on who they are. Because, again, at the end of the day, sexual assault is about power and control. And we have to acknowledge that. And why does somebody feel like they have to take that power and control over other people? And so I feel like when we discuss affirmative consent with um, what I have with my son and some of his friends and some of the younger people that I I work with and um, I've just seen their viewpoint about that um, very, I think their viewpoint is very different than the viewpoint of my generation and I'm a a Gen Xer. I'm looking at a photo of you. This is from Deseret News. This is from last year. You're signing the uh, Start by Believing pledge. And I want to talk a little bit. We talked a little bit earlier uh, about this. I want to return to this. Um, you know, Start by Believing. And it, it seems so basic. Why do you think we as a society have trouble believing uh, victims? Because we've been socialized to victim blame. We, you know, we see things on, on you know, on TV and I, I, I used this the other time when we were talking about, like, like, I take, for instance, the cartoons, Looney Tunes and Pepe Le Pew and how he, you know, eventually broke the other, you know, character down. And so I think for, as, you know, growing up and, and seeing, like, well, she's just playing hard to get, and, you know, and and you know, kind of flipping that script and saying, maybe this person was never interested in you and you should respect their boundary. And so what this really goes back to is respecting boundaries and respecting people and believing people. And with Start By Believing, we have another proposal by Dr. Valentine and a group of people I work with who work on sexual assault year-round and, and try to do preventative education. Start By Believing was really for... Uh, a, a victim of sexual assault, of someone who survived, you know, that horrific crime against them, to let them know that um, that we believe them. And again, when we talk about believing somebody, that doesn't mean that person is going to always want to report it. That doesn't mean that that person is um, going to, um, you know, want that prosecution. We want to make sure that we're getting that individual the help they need to to heal and move forward in their life. Because again, um, when I interact with people in the work I do outside of here, outside of the legislature, and, and you look at certain situations when you when you get down to it, that person has experienced some childhood trauma. And so I, I just look at a, there's a lot of wounded people walking around in our society and around in our state and in, in our country because they weren't believed, whether it was sexual assault or whether it was something else. And so my goal as a legis- as a representative, as a legislator, is to make sure that um, we're helping people move forward in their life and, and so that they can start that next chapter and not be haunted by something horrific that happened to them. 
I want to move uh, just briefly near the end of the conversation here to a different uh, topic. Anything else you'd like to say about uh, affirmative consent in this uh, this particular bill? I mean, it, it is a huge culture shift, but I also think we need to shift it in the law. And I'm not, again, I'm not trying to put everyone in jail. What I'm trying to do is set a standard for how we respect each other as individuals and what is um, healthy relationships and that when you're going to have an intimate relationship with someone that you have that consent. That is critical because many people may feel like they have consent and they don't because they don't get it. And so that's that's a huge red flag that I think people um, need to recognize and um, understand that if um, you don't have consent, then you need to stop. I want to uh, read this headline. This is in KSL.com. Um, Utah ranked in the top 10 states for missing and murdered indigenous women and girls cases. The uh, According to a national study, Utah and Salt Lake City ranked top 10 of states and cities. Um, I know there's a task force working on this. You've done a lot of work on this. Uh, what uh, What is next? What are, what are we working on here? Yeah, so I ran legislation in 2019 to just bring awareness to murdered and missing indigenous women and girls, and two-spirited individuals was the resolution, and and that that passed successfully. And then I knew that we had the opportunity to form the task force. Now, um, what the um, the study um, pointed out, and and what Salt Lake City said, our um, Salt Lake City Police Department. They have different um, perspectives on that particular data. So um, with the task force, and I co-chair that with um, Senator Hinkins, we're asking for $130,000 to do a, a study to assess the data to identify where the gaps are here in our state so that we can work with the federal government, with our tribal communities, and with our, our local entities to, to try to address this issue. So um, we're going before executive appropriations um, next week to ask for that money for the study because we really want to make sure that we're getting accurate information and we want to ensure that um, people from our indigenous communities um, are talking to a trusted source because um, the history between our indigenous communities and, and government is it's a rocky one at times. And so we want to assure that we're collecting the right information and the right data from a, a source of trust so that we can move forward in addressing this, what I consider an epidemic in our country. Do we, uh, you know, a lot of studies, I'm sure, and looking at, of course, task force is going to look at exactly what Utah can do. But uh, any idea why, why we have this epidemic? Well, again, it goes to value, and, and it, it relates to sexual assault. When you look at um, the, the data at a national level, um, the majority of perpetrators are not Indigenous men. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. So, again, it, it goes back to how do we value people? How do we value difference here in, in our country, the United States of America, that's supposed to embrace everyone. And so this goes back to an, an equity issue and um, how we treat each other and um, and how we value individuals that are different than us. And um, 
when we're talking about our First Nation people, um, they were here before us, and there's a horrific history there. I mean, um, my my father, my from what my father told me, my my grandmother, because my father's indigenous, um, she was sent to um, boarding school, and she was to get the Indian out of her. And so you you look at that history between um, our indigenous communities and our um, and our country, and and there's again that power and control issue. And so again, how do we value people? And the other thing is the it's it's difficult to prosecute people because of sovereign nation and our boundaries here in Utah, and then you tie in the federal government. So these are the things that we're looking at, and I know that our new Secretary of Interior wants to work on this as well, and she's formed a task force, so that's encouraging to me. But all the other states around us have done a similar study to identify the specific needs in their states, and so that's what we want to do here in Utah. Just have a couple minutes left in the conversation here. Uh, Anything else you're working on that you'd like to mention? Another bill that was brought to me by a constituent that is now in the Senate is um, when somebody files a protective order that they can include their pet. And I didn't realize um, what an an issue this was here in Utah or even across the country. And so 35 states have passed this legislation that would allow somebody um, when um, they decide to leave an abusive situation or and they try to get a protective order that they can include their their pet in that. And so, again, when we're talking about sexual assault and domestic violence, we're talking about power and control. And so if, if a perpetrator feels like they can't control an individual, then they'll do things to hurt things they care about, whether that is, um, you know, something of value to them or whether that's a pet. And we've seen this happen in Utah most recently is the, the, the dog Dixie and how that was a horrible situation. So um, we want to um, and give that um, victim an opportunity to take their pet with them so that they know their pet's safe. And I know a lot of um, domestic violence shelters don't take pets, but there are refuges that uh, will board border the pet until that individual is safe and secure. So um, I didn't, um, it's a bill out of all my bills that has really um, touched people and I've gotten a lot of positive feedback about it. Well, we reached the uh, end of our hour uh, together. We've been talking with uh, Representative Angela Romero. Earlier in the hour, we talked also with uh, Julie Valentine, BYU nursing uh, professor. Uh, Representative uh, Romero, thanks so much. Appreciate you taking some time with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Our guest uh, for the hour is Angela Romero. She's a representative in uh, Utah House of Representatives, uh, representing uh, Salt Lake City Democrat. Uh, she's sponsoring House Bill 98, which would create a third-degree felony offense of sexual conduct without affirmative consent. And so that was one of our topics. Earlier in the hour, we had with us Julie Valentine, Associate Dean of and Professor in the College of Nursing at Brigham Young uh, University. Our thanks to both of our guests uh, today. And our thanks uh, to you for listening to Access Utah today. Welcome to Utah Public Radio's Eating the Past and Other Tasty Morsels, a show that explores all things food. Your hosts are Jeannie Sir, Jamie Sanders, and Tammy Proctor, all from the History Department at Utah State University. I'm Jamie Sanders. February is Chocolate Month here at Eating the Past, 
And today we are looking at chocolate from a more scientific perspective, as we welcome Dr. Silvana Martini, who is a professor in the Nutrition, Dietetics, and Food Sciences Department at Utah State University, as well as the faculty director of the Aggie Chocolate Factory. Silvana, as a biochemist, what made you interested in chocolate? Hi, Jamie. Thank you for having me in your show. Um, yes, I'm a biochemist uh, with a minor in chemistry. I did a PhD in chemistry with an emphasis in food science. There is a lot of chemistry in food science, and that is what has attracted me to food and chocolate in particular. Uh, most of us enjoy chocolate because of its flavor and texture and mouthfeel. And uh, cocoa butter, the fat present in chocolate, is responsible for this uh, flavor release and texture. And uh, I've been always fascinated by fats and oils and how they crystallize and how they provide structure to foods. And that is what really links me to chocolate. So humans domesticated the cacao tree in the early Americas, and indigenous peoples, such as the Mayan Aztecs, mostly drank their chocolate as a beverage, unsweetened, and mixed with chiles. How does biochemistry relate to turning cacao beans into the chocolate bars that the Aggie Chocolate Factory produces? That's a great question. So chocolate is made uh, with uh, cocoa beans, and uh, cocoa beans are the seeds of a fruit, the cocoa pod, that grows on a tree, the cocoa tree, Right after the fruit is harvested, the seeds, which are covered by a white, slimy, and sweet pulp, are taken out of the fruit and are placed on the ground where a fermentation process begins. Various uh, types of yeast and bacteria ferment the beans and change the chemical composition of the beans, creating important flavor precursors that will be needed later on for flavor development. That's fascinating. Although the cacao tree is from the Americas, the Ivory Coast in Africa is the world's largest producer of chocolate now. Do you have a favorite source of cacao beans? Yes, you're right. Approximately 70% of the bulk cocoa beans, that is the cocoa beans that are used to make the mainstream chocolate, uh, they come from West Africa, both from Ivory Coast and Ghana. Now, at the Aggie Chocolate Factory, we make what is called single-origin chocolate. These chocolates are made with cocoa beans that come from a single location, Single origin chocolates are very special because uh, of the flavor that they have, and that is the flavor of those chocolates are going to be dependent on the origin of the beans. At the Chocolate Factory, we have chocolates from four different locations, Belize, Ecuador, Ghana, and the Dominican Republic. And chocolate now has a strong association with Valentine's Day and romance. Well, of course, this is a long cultural history. Is there, in cacao beans, any chemical reason for this association? You know, there isn't really a strong chemical or scientific association between chocolate and romance. However, uh, cocoa contains uh, two compounds. One is uh, theobromine, which is an alkaloid, very similar to caffeine, and is a stimulant that increases our heart rate and respiration. The other compound is uh, the proof that uh, chocolate releases a compound to our brain. It's called dopamine. And uh, dopamine leads to a feeling of desire and pleasure. And all these sensations can be associated with relaxation and romance. In addition, as you just mentioned, you know, the, the, the association with romance comes from thousands of years ago when the first consumers of cocoa, the Mayans and the Aztecs, already used cocoa to express love. In those days, cocoa was consumed by the upper class or the elite, and cocoa was consumed during special occasions such as weddings. During the wedding ceremony itself, the groom will give five cocoa beans to the bride and vice versa, similar to what we do these days with rings. Our sincere thanks to Silvana Martini for joining us today and sharing her chocolate expertise. 
Join us next week when Jeannie Sir will explore survival cooking. Support for UPR's Eating the Past comes from Rock Hill Creamery in Richmond, creating natural rind raw milk cheeses including dark or snow canyon Edom, named after two southern Utah canyons. Cheese with character, rockhillcheese.com, and USU Dining Services, available to students and the community at 16 locations across the USU campus. More information at usu.edu dining. For UPR's 2022 Utah legislative coverage is made possible by our members and the USU Institute for Disability Research, Policy, and Practice, Utah's University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities. More information at idrpp.usu.edu. Radio Lab is coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour. How the samba and bossa nova have grown up and married into a world of electronica, chill, and funk. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Pack your bags and join us for Brazilian Groove, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio.